Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard, and Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Nomad Strength Show. I'm Ross Hillier, your host. I am really pumped about today's show. I was able to finally sit down and talk with Josh Smith of Montana Knife Company. Uh, Josh and I have a lot of mutual friends and just have not been able to connect until right uh, when we sat down to do this interview. So I was really pumped to dive into more of how Montana Knife Company began, what he's been doing in the knife world for a couple of decades now, uh, Josh was the youngest master bladesmith ever uh, at 19 years old. And he tells that story of what it's like to go through that testing process and certification process. Uh, and then we just talk a lot about uh, American manufacturing and why it's so important right now and uh, how Montana Knife Company started just over a year ago and has grown massively. We really get to dive into the whole MKC story, which was really cool. Uh, Josh is a great guy. Follow him. And if you get the chance, they do drops on their knives when they have them in stock. And we talk a lot about how uh, how crazy it's been when they sell all of their knives out in five minutes, which happens pretty much every time. So if you're lucky enough to be one of the ones who get one, uh, cherish because they are few. And uh, I'm really excited. I was really excited to talk to him today. So I know you guys are going to enjoy this one. So before we get into that, if you haven't gone and listened, uh, or excuse me, if you haven't gone and uh, subscribed or followed into the show yet on whatever podcast platform you listen on, you can please do that. It really helps the show. You can leave a nice little review, give a five-star thing wherever uh, you're able to do that. And it does help the show grow. And then finally, this podcast, as all of the others, are brought to you by Ride On Optics, the only military LEO vet uh, optics-owned company in the world. And they make killer, killer stuff. Uh, I'm heading up into the mountains this weekend. Going to test out the one primal rifle scope that I've got of theirs and uh, hopefully have some good things to say. I know I already do because I've shot through it, but uh, have some good reports coming back from the mountains from our first hunting trip of the year. 
And then they've also got the Ride On Revolution, which is an awesome education platform on the site. So go check it out. Learn about firearms. Learn about rifle scopes. There's the Ride On podcast, Ride On University, the blog, everything there. So go to Ride On Optics, R-I-T-O-N optics.com and check it out. And here, without further ado, is the conversation with Josh Smith. All right, everybody. Here on the Nomad Strength Show, I'm with Josh Smith of Montana Knife Company. Josh, thank you for making time, man. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, you have been somebody that has been requested by many to come on the show since launching it. <laughs> we have we have many of uh, many mutual friends and many MKC supporters that have been on the show, and and they're like, you got to get Josh on, man. You got to hear his story and all that kind of stuff. And so here we are, finally doing it. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I've uh, I've listened to uh, you know several of those different episodes with some of the people that are our. Uh, kind of in our mutual network, yeah. fa- family, friendship. So super totally. cool. Yeah, seems like we kind of uh, revolve around some of the same people. So I think cool. so too. And that's that's what I've, that's one of the coolest things about having this podcast is when you get to realize that kind of stuff. Like when, yeah. you, when you understand like, oh, you're like good friends with this person, you'd be good friends with this person that I know over here. And then you just like end up building all these little networks and stuff all over the place. And it's just, yeah. so, so much of it has come from, like just having this show and actually connect with people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's a small world, you know. It's mm-hmm. when I got into this kind of outdoor industry, per yeah. se, um, you know, I was just a consumer of, you know, product, whether it was, you know, Eberly Stock or Yeti or Sitka or name, name the brand, you know, Leopold or whatever. And to me, they were all just these huge brands. Yeah. Um, but then once I got a kind of got into it, I actually got to meet a lot of the just average everyday people that are behind all these brands and doing the the heavy lifting every day. And mm-hmm. you come to find out it's actually a really small world. Yeah, it really so. is. And and then, like I said, everybody knows everybody. And it's just mm-hmm. kind of cool to make those connections. Um, so in the, I, I have several questions because I am fascinated by the art of what you do in knife making. So there's several questions I'm going to ask that is just like me wanting to find these things out for my own curiosity's sake. So yeah. um, before we get into a couple of those, like how did this, I mean, you meant this whole thing with Montana Knife Company kind of seems like it has been one of those overnight things, but you did not just start making knives like one year ago. So right. uh, how did this all become a thing for you and how did you get into this, into this world? Well, I, uh, thank you. My wife just handed me my fresh cup of coffee here, so we're good to go. Um, yeah, you know, the, the, the Montana knife company brand is pretty much new. Um, Mm -hmm. um, but like, like you said, I've been a knife maker actually for almost 30 years. So, Mm -hmm. uh, I think it'll be 30 years next year. So, um, you know, to kind of take it back, I mean, I started making knives when I was 11 years old. My little league baseball coach started teaching me. And, uh, you know, I, I did the custom knife thing all the way from that point all the way through to now. Mm-hmm. Um, but over the last 10 or 15 years, I've kind of always had this dream of starting a production knife company. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of the reason behind that is, is uh, you know, I... The, the customs I've been making in the last, say, 15 years, 20 years are, are pretty high-end, pretty expensive. 
your average everyday user isn't going to buy them. Uh, your average guy just working a day job or whatever, you're not going to generally buy those knives and take them out in the field. Yeah. Um, but I always had tons and tons of requests from people for hunting knives. And I would do some for people around here locally, but frankly, I just wouldn't be able to make enough of them to, to kind of meet that demand. Sure. Um, and one of the greatest things I always did get pleasure out of is, is when somebody would buy a custom from me and take it out in the field and use it. Mm-hmm. I always thought that was super, super cool. It wasn't like it was just uh, sitting on the shelf um, as a collector's item. Yeah. It was actually being used for its intended purpose when I built it. Um, so I you know, actually bought the name Montana Knife Company when I was 19 years old oh, um, cool. or, or registered it with the state. Yeah. So, and I've, and I've owned the website, you know, URL for that since about then. Um, so yeah, 10, 11, you know, you actually more than that, 20 years, geez, I'm getting old, <laughs> almost, almost 20 years. I've, I've had this idea, but only actually really implemented it last year. So what was the catalyst to start with this a year ago? Like, I mean, after all this time, what was it that happened last year that, that kicked it off for you? Well, all along, there were several reasons I hadn't really launched it. Uh, a lot of it was like personal reasons of just feeling like I was in a spot in my personal life where I was ready to actually launch a company and do it the right way. I, I knew I would only have one chance to do it right. Um, you know, it's not one of those things where you can really launch a brand and then do a half-assed job at it, stop for a while, and then go again. Like, sure. I, I knew I had to wait till the time was right. Um you know, my kids were really young back then. Uh, you know, I don't think I was financially in a spot or emotionally, personally, just everything just ready for that yet. Sure. Um, what really changed was, you know, kids got older, obviously, over time. And then um, when I met my new wife, uh, she was a super big supporter of just the idea of doing that. And at that yeah. time, I was a full-time lineman for the power company okay. locally, for our local utility. And so... I was going to a day job every day, but she she saw this idea. She saw my passion for it, and uh, she was a huge supporter in saying, like, you need to do this. Mm-hmm. And really, when COVID hit, uh, right before COVID hit, I'd gone to Winter Strong at Burt Soren's out mm-hmm. there at Sornex, and I actually just took a few uh, prototypes, showed some people and said, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm kind of getting ready to launch. And it was really cool. That particular community was incredibly supportive. And they were like, hey, if you're going to do this, we're behind you. And I really felt like a huge sense of like of a wave of push at, at my back at that point. Yeah. And I kind of figured like, my, you know, my wife and I talked and it's like, if we're going to ever do this, like we have the support from the right people. I have the knowledge I got support from my wife. And so even though we were kind of headed right into COVID at that point, yeah. it was like, screw it, we're going to go for it. That's and it awesome. was kind of one of those deals where, while it seemed a lot of people were pulling back during COVID and, and stopping, mm-hmm. uh, we just hit the gas pedal like 1,000%. That's so you cool. Know? You see those those moments all throughout history, like I'm, I, where in times where like you said, everybody would, you would think would be like backing off. Like, we don't know what's going on. We're going to be really safe with all this. We don't know, like we're going to protect everything kind of shield. Right. 
And, yep. and then there's the people that are like, this is the time where I'm going to make the move. And you saw the same thing. I think there's a lot of parallels. You saw the same thing that happened last year with what happened back in like 2008. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, all the people that instead of seeing all these things that they're afraid of, like we see huge opportunity here to fill some of these gaps that like nobody's taking advantage of. And, and with all the crap that came with the last 20 months, I think there was a ton of that that went on, which is really cool when you think about it and, yep. and for it to be something like, and I know that especially lately on your, on your guys's and on your Instagram pages, you know, this whole thing is American manufacturing, right? It's USA. Made. Right. And that's like, Right now, we're we're especially like this week, like today we're getting, you know, this week we're getting the images of like all these cargo ships that are like hundreds of them just sitting on the outsides of the ports, like can't get in, right? Yeah. So like we're now we're seeing like, oh, this actually really matters. It's not just a nice phrase to slap on something to try and get, you know, more support. Like this stuff actually makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think it also shows too, like, you see so much in our society right now today of like, depending on the government, waiting for a handout, you know, what am I going to get? When am I going to get my check? When am I going to get this or whatever? And to me, I, I think we are kind of proving that even in the midst of, you know, kind of an emergency situation or whatever, especially back last year at this time when we were kind of launching all this, there was a lot of unknowns. Um, I, I, st- I think it still shows that the American dream is alive and well. Like if you if you just freaking get after it, you can make anything. You can make it happen. Um, totally. The the whole idea of hard work, um, you know, some right moves, and also like a supportive network. Yes. I mean that that part of it is huge. Like I can't underestimate or understate um, enough the uh, the amount of support we've had of like free support, not, mm-hmm. not paid influencers or whatever, just people that are buying into who we are and what we're doing totally. and the mission. And, and, um, you know, obviously we want to pay that forward as we, as we can, as we go forward, but like, man, you can still do whatever it is you want in this country, you know? And, and that's where I think young people need to see, um, there's just so much, you hear so much about how you can't get things done today or you can't do this, or you can't do that. We, you know, in my opinion, <clears throat> we live in the greatest country in the world. We have the most opportunity. There's never been, even with all the BS that you see happening on TV, mm-hmm. there's never been a better time to be a human than today. Right. And there's never been more opportunity. I mean, when I started making knives, there was no internet. Like I had to go to people's shops and learn. And now if you want to know how to start a production, whatever, mm-hmm. you can get online and Google it. Yeah. Like it's all out there showing you, you just got to get after it, you know? That's, and that is the truth. And in the knife world specifically, this is something that I've been and, and I don't know if it's just like, because of the people that I follow, I just see it more because you know, that's how like the social media thing works. So I don't know if it actually reflects this, but it seems like knife making and, and that whole industry has gotten huge in the last few years, kind of, I mean, I don't know if it it seems like that to you, but like, I don't remember ever seeing a bunch of like cool knives and and like that being its own little niche, you know, a long time ago. Are you seeing that too? What do you think that's from? Yeah, for sure. It's actually interesting and it makes me feel like a dinosaur, but like I was, I was around the knife making community when it was, I mean, tiny, 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 uh, 
I, I actually got to learn from some of the makers that actually kind of helped revive like forging of blades and whatnot uh, yeah. that were, were doing a lot of really amazing things in the 70s and really small little pockets around the country. Okay. Um, we're talking three and four guys at a time here and three and four guys there, you know, some in the Northeast, some in the South. And they were doing some things and it started to kind of bubble and fester and grow. And they started going to knife shows and showing other people. And then by the time I really came on the scene, like in the early to mid nineties, mm-hmm. it was really starting to go like knife shows were becoming a big thing. We were taking our knives to shows and selling a, a bunch of knives in a hurry and like mm. collecting was becoming a thing. Blade Magazine was around. Um, and it just kind of kept growing. But even still, into the 2000s, if you told somebody you were a knife maker, most people looked at you like you were <laughs> kind of had two heads. Like, like, yeah, but what's your actual job? Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, where really things got totally mainstreamed for the knife making community was when the show Forged in Fire came along. I was wondering if that had a big <clears throat> impact on it. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of knife makers. There's a lot of things you can say about Forged in Fire. Some guys like it, some guys don't. Um, like any television show, there's as as a professional knife maker, there's some things that I would like to see changed. But in the end, they're also trying to make a, a television show to, for entertainment. Right. Um, so it would be a pretty boring show if, if you just had a camera in front of a guy in a shop for three weeks straight <laughs> right. making a knife. So, uh, however, what it really did do was just explode the eyeballs on the community and showed kind of the craft and the art form that it can be um, yeah. and what you can do. I mean, uh, what you can make knives out of. Now, a lot of the stuff they make knives out of, you wouldn't necessarily actually want to make them and sell them. Sure. I mean... I always tell people, go buy good steel, buy steel that you know what it is. You, you put all this time and effort. It's like it's like taking all day to bake like the most beautiful pie for some competition and then come to find out, you know, the ingredients, the flour that you started with was rotten flour. Yeah. <laughs> when yeah. all you would have had to buy was, you know, a dollar worth of good flour, sure. you know. Yeah. So, um, you know, anyway, I get off kind of on tangents with Forged and Fire. But what it did do was really put a lot of eyeballs on our community and show that like, oh, hey, those guys, and they do a good job on that show of showing like, we're not really just a bunch of psychopaths, you know, (laughs) making knives and stabbing stuff. Like there really is a craft. There's a lot of science to it, the metallurgy part. Um, There's an art form to it. You have to be an artist. You have to be a hard worker. You have to be able to be, work with your hands. And you Mm -hmm. also have to have, um, understand some science of the metallurgy. So that's really cool. And what it, I mean, and also when you think about it, though, I mean, this is not even even if we were to trace it back. This is not a new profession. Like no, like, like we're talking like thousands of years. People have been exactly. making knives, right? So I mean, it's not like this just sprouted up all of a sudden. But it, like you said, it it brought some more eyes. Like, oh, this is actually like really cool. And this might be even if somebody gets into it not for the reason to sell, but like maybe it might be a useful skill for me to have to be able to do this at some point in my life, you know? Yeah, you're right. And it's it's definitely one of these crafts that was done at an unbelievably high level in the 1700s, 1800s. Um, I have books. Uh, anyone can go like to the Metropolitan Museum 
in New York or the Arms and Armor collections like at the Wallace Collection in London um, and any number of other museums around, they almost all have an Arms and Armor collection. And when you go in there and you see uh, the full suits of armor that was being made, the swords, the knives, the different maces, all these different weapons, and it wasn't just like kind of nasty looking weapons. I mean, these were being made for you know, the rulers of the time, the kings and queens and whatnot. And they were done at like unbelievably high levels, like to levels that we can't even do today because no one could really ever afford it. I mean, sometimes these people had generations of families working on one project, Wow, you know? So, um, but that, that was all kind of lost for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, especially here in the U S you know, a lot of that stuff that happened in, uh, you know, Iran, the Iranian area, the, the European area, the Japanese area, a lot of that stuff didn't necessarily come over with, mm. with the pilgrims, you know? Sure. Um, and, and so some of that art form was lost, but then it started to kind of get rediscovered and rebirthed here in the U.S. in the 70s, um, especially the real art form part of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, they've been making knives in factories in Sheffield, England for hundreds of years. Yeah, totally. You know? And it really is kind of man's first tool. I mean, you think about a knife, like, you know, if you were thinking about a caveman, you know, an obsidian, piece of obsidian that they flint napped and turned into a, mm -hmm. an edge for use on all kinds of different things was, you know, it's, it's interesting where that art form's all kind of developed and come to. It's crazy that, because it's not the first time I've heard of, a, of an industry where it's like the stuff that they were doing four or 500 years ago was not, I don't know if better is the right word, but of higher, like insane quality that mm -hmm. like we just assume because it was forever ago that it wasn't as good as the stuff that we have now, you know what right. I mean? And that, and that, but like, I've heard this in several different things and it's funny in the, in like the health and strength world and training world, which I'm in, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I've had several, uh, guys come on the podcast before. And one of them is actually my coach now who does, we do specifically the old time strongman lifts from like the early uh, 20, late 19th, early 20th century, like Sandow and Arthur Saxon and all those guys were doing. And all of these things were like still unbelievably effective, but they just like got lost forever. And nobody, and like when the bodybuilding thing came up, people just kind of stopped doing, you know, like bent presses and like all of these like crazy exercises that worked 150 years ago. Right. Uh, like, so we think that just because like we live now in like this super high tech time, like is just automatically better. And it's like, well, not, not, not necessarily for a lot of stuff. That's super interesting. Think, think about how physically fit and how strong, uh, especially functional strength, how strong those people had to have been. Like I, if you go to an arms and armor collection and you see the armor that those people had oh, to get man. put on and then march for a thousand miles before they fought a battle. I mean, Insane. The, uh, just look at old logging pictures from back in the early 1900s of the size of the saws, the hand saws, the two and three man, four man hand saws. Like or 15 foot long ones and they're just oh, cranking it back and forth. Un, just unreal, you <laughs> yeah. know. And you, you think about how physically and mentally strong those people had oh, to have man. been. You know, the old miners back in the day. And yep. these people that came to Montana with a mule and a wagon full of mining supplies and they just picked a spot on the mountain and started digging a hole in the rock. Like, 
So crazy. you know, just makes you think like we're just so soft. Like, oh, right so <laughs> soft. So, so you know the. I think Bert Sorden calls it. Uh, I don't know if he came up with it, but the comfort crisis. Oh you know? yeah, that that book that he's been that they've been reading lately. I've seen all of them. All those guys post about that book lately. Yeah, yeah. and even our most hard people today, we live such comfortable lives oh, compared man. to, you know. I mean, I'm going hunting Sunday for mm-hmm. ten days in the backcountry. We're flying in. And I mean, I'm taking a, a tiny a tiny tent with an actual backpack wood stove, and <laughs> I've got I've got down sleeping bags. I've got all this high level gear from right. Sitka and Eberly stock, and like all this stuff just to stay comfortable. And those guys were wearing old leather shoes and you know wool pants or whatever you know, and then like the actual animal skins as jackets and stuff yeah. like. <laughs> Just yeah, crazy man. And they didn't even have a weather forecast. They just had nope. to be prepared for everything. Yep, just like we're just but, gonna be out here. If we die, we die. Yeah, <laughs> like, just unbelievable. It's crazy. Yeah, the uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you. So you technically have the the title of like master bladesmith, right? Right. So what I mean, what does that mean? Like, was there like some sort of certification process? Like, how does that go about? Like, what what do you have to do in order to attain that title? Yeah, and and the process really hasn't changed since I did it, you know, 20 years ago. But uh, um, you have to join the American Bladesmith Society um, just as a member. Uh, You have to be a member for three years. uh, And essentially at that point, you're considered an apprentice. Hmm. Uh, There's no real formal apprenticeship per se. You just have to learn, you know, today it's YouTube. Back when I did it, you had to go to people's shops and really actually get information and learn Uh, after you're a member for three years, you're eligible to test for a journeyman, your journeyman Smith. So if you think you're at that level, uh, you have to, uh, you have to forge a one inch, uh, or I'm sorry, you have to forge a 10 inch blade, uh, can't be any longer than 10 inches. That blade, once you forge it, heat treat it, grind it, you have to do a performance test with it. So you have to chop a one inch rope in half. You have to shave two, or you have to chop two, two by fours in half as many chops as you want on the two by fours. And then you have to shave your uh, hair off your arm with that edge. <laughs> and they also examine the edge for any kind of deformation, okay. uh, any chipping, any you know bending, cracking. You take that same blade and you put it in the vise and you have bend it 90 degrees without breaking it. Okay, I've seen you do that in some videos lately. Yeah. Some of your guys's. Yep. So what that shows is that you actually know that's the science part I was saying earlier with Forged and Fire. Yeah you know how to actually heat treat. If you make that blade too soft and you hit a knot in a piece of wood, it's gonna bend. But if you make it too hard, the edge will chip or it might crack when you, or break when you bend it. Mm-hmm. So you're looking for that real fine line between like hardness and toughness. Yeah. Um, you don't want it to be, you know, if, if you don't want it to be so hard that it's brittle. Right. Um, but if you go the other direction, then you start making a blade that's too soft. So, uh, once you pass that, you actually take five knives and you present them to a panel of judges at the Atlanta Blade Show. Happens once a year. You take five knives of your choosing. Basically, there's a few parameters. You uh, present those to the judges and they judge your fit and finish and the quality of your knives. At the journeyman level, you have to be able to just show that you can, you're, you, you're, a, you're a professional knife maker, but you're not, you don't have to be perfect. Uh, there can be little things, but uh, they better be pretty damn good, you know? Right. So I actually did that when I was 15. 
<laughs> and and became the youngest journeyman knife maker in the world. And then uh, you have to be a journeyman at least two years before you test for master smith. Okay. I actually waited four until I felt like I was ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and at 19, I tested for the master smith rating and and passed. And and that also is basically the same test, but you have to do it with a Damascus blade that you forge. Okay. Um, has to be 300 layers of Damascus steel or more. And then you have to present your five knives to the judges, but one of them has to be a 10-inch a, a quillion dagger, which is basically just a really complicated blade to make. It's hard to make it symmetrical. Okay. You, have to, you have to carve it, the handle, and flute it. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that they make you do there that just shows that you're at a high level. Yeah, worthy of the uh, title of master, right? Yes, yeah. and uh, and they judge your stuff at that point very harshly. I mean, if there's anything wrong with any of your blades, you're going to fail. So, so yeah, I passed that when I was 19 and uh, was the youngest to ever do that. So that's crazy. Do it? Does it? Do most people take like multiple tries at it, or can't? Like, do you have to wait a certain amount of time to try it again, or can you just go back the next year and test? Yeah, again I, for it? if you if your performance blade breaks, I think you have to wait. It's either three or six months okay. to do it again, so you can't just go take it again tomorrow. Gotcha. Um, uh, you know, really, if you fail at the Atlanta Blade Show, naturally, the next time you can test is a year later at the next Blade Show. Gotcha. Um, and yeah, there's there's you know, uh, you know, definitely a a failure rate for sure. So, yeah. um, which that's good. I mean, that's I mean that shows that they're it's you know exclusivity is not like the goal, but that means that they're scrutinizing it to a level worthy of being that title. Right. Yeah. You want the test to be fair and attainable, um, but you definitely don't want it to be, to be easy and cheap in it. Um, I think when I did it, there were around uh, 75 or 80 in the world. And now there's probably like 20 years later, there's probably like 150. Oh, wow. Um, you know, some, somewhere in that range. I'm not ent- entirely sure of the numbers. I, I will say about that test a couple things. One, there are some really amazing, great knife makers out there that just didn't choose to do it, sure. that I'm sure have the ability. So just because right. a person's not a quote-unquote mastersmith doesn't mean that they can't do it. Right. Um, I will say about that, it takes... I, I always really respect people that go and do that test today because it takes some balls to like put yourself out on the line. Yeah. Like you can say, yeah, I can squat 500 pounds, but go stand up at Summer Strong in front of everyone and go put 500 it. pounds on the bar. <laughs> yeah. That's that, right? Like that's, that takes some, some balls and some courage. Totally. You know, um, you're definitely setting yourself up for public failure when you're doing that test. And, and so it's easy to say like, I could pass that if I wanted. Um, it's kind of, and I, that's how I looked like when I, when I went on Forged and Fire, mm-hmm. that's how I looked at Forged and Fire. I didn't have really a ton to gain from that experience, but uh, a big part of that for me is I'm always telling my kids not to be afraid of a challenge. Sure. and. It was easy for me to sit there and watch that show and be like, man, I'd kick that guy's ass. He's terrible, right? (laughs) Or like that task is easy. I could have done that. It's another thing to go on national television and accept a challenge that you don't know what it's going to be and then actually do it. Right. Um, You know, and I came in second twice. Now, the first time I 
felt like I kind of got hosed by the mm-hmm. judging. Um, you know, that's that's arguable and debatable. The, the second time, I just got short on time. I mm-hmm. tried to bite off more than I could chew. I, I made a beautiful sword, one of the best they've ever had. But I had to cut some heat treating processes out just to finish sure. under the, the time. Yeah. And the I was winning, and in the very last test, my edge chipped. Uh, oh, that's that that's that whole balance, right, between yeah. hardness and softness and toughness. And uh, and so I lost to a really great guy that I became actually through that competition really good friends with, cool. uh, Mareko Mamasi. But uh, the whole thing I wanted my kids to see is like, don't be afraid to fail mm-hmm. in front of people you know, put yourself out there. I mean, that's really what sports is all about. That's what I love so much. My kids are all very active in sports. Yeah. And I actually had a long talk with my son last night because he's kind of a star football player. Uh, he's, you know, probably probably the best player at his age on this, you know, in this state, quite frankly. That's awesome. And he's big, he's strong, he's just, he's just a monster and he's really good and is very heady with football. However, uh, he had a little bit of an issue where he ran into some failure in his last game. I wouldn't even necessarily say total failure, but, uh, you know, he, he handled the situation a little bit poorly. Hmm. And, and so we had a discussion, and, you know, he's, a, he's the leader on his team by far. And I told him one thing they don't really coach you a lot, in, especially in youth football, is how to lead. They teach you how to tackle and how to block and whatever, but... Uh, they don't teach you how to lead. Mm-hmm. And I said, in this part of the game last night, uh, you failed. Like that was a, but I said, you can't change it. It's just like, if you miss a tackle, you can't go back and retackle the kid. You have mm-hmm. to learn from it. And we talked about, it's more of like mentally self-talking himself down when he's, all, you know, you're all amped up, you're playing and you're really getting after it. And then after the game's over, you have to kind of start to bring yourself back down and, totally. and remove yourself from the, uh, you know, and he's a seventh grader. So it was a learning experience and he's that's a really cool. good kid. Um, but yeah, like it's the, that, that. That's like the sweet spot in age too, to like begin that process of learning those things. Yeah. And that, and that, so that's my whole thing with like, whether it's sports or, uh, or knife making, you know, being willing to put yourself out there in front of people and test yourself and sometimes fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it, you know, it makes you better or hopefully it'll make you better if you handle it right. Totally. You know? And the response to it is always going to be what determines whether or not you handle it better. I mean, like right. you, how you respond is going to be what determines if that was an actual failure, or if you actually grow from it. Well, I told him, I actually used that as an example last night. I said, when I lost the first time on Forged and Fire, I said, and I was standing there in front of the judges on national television and they made their decision. I said, do you think I agreed with it? And he's like, no. <laughs> right. And I said, uh, I had a moment right there where I had a decision of how I was going to handle it. Mm-hmm. Uh, was I going to throw a fit? Was I going to argue? Like the decision was made. They weren't going to change it. Right. Um, you know, so I, I took it like a man. I congratulated the people that I went against and, and walked away. And uh, now, was I pissed about it? Sure. Do, mm-hmm. it, does it drive you to get better? Yeah. Totally. Um, but I said, you know, that's where you have to... You know, it's easy, it's easy when you're succeeding to handle things the right way. Right. It's harder when, you know, you're failing and, or maybe feeling embarrassment or whatever, you know, it's that, that's a little harder to, to do the right thing, you know? Totally. So that's awesome, man. Um, I want to bring it back to 
the actual what you guys are doing with the company right now. Um, when you guys launched this thing, about I mean, it was like almost exactly a year ago, right? Or maybe just a little over a year ago, where when the first drop was, or was it? Yeah, it was just a little over a year ago because we we actually launched our website last July. Okay, and so I was uh, thinking, yeah, had knives for sale at that time. Um, I had we had you know just a couple hundred knives for sale at that point. So in this in this process, when you're putting all of this together, what is your idea of how you're going to do this business? Because how you said before, you're like you know you, there aren't many that go into like the production part of it. So clearly with how much it's exploded in a year, like what you guys are doing was working. So like, was that how you were planning on it going from the start or what is the process you guys had envisioned for it? it it's, it's pretty hard to say that this is exactly what I had planned because it would have been, <laughs> it would have been pretty arrogant for me to think that we could have like gotten to this level in a year. You yeah, know what I mean? So, totally. um, no, I've definitely been a little caught off guard. Uh, you know, for example, you know, we, we generally sell out of our drops really, really fast. A lot of times within minutes of, of selling our, of dropping the knives. And so, so frustrating, you know, by the way, yeah. <laughs> so for me, not for you guys. Yeah. Well, no, sometimes it's frustrating for me because like, I, I feel bad because then we have people angry that they weren't able to get a knife or you, you know, right. people, you have connections with people and you know, you didn't know they were trying to get a knife and then they email you or text you like, right. bro. Come on, <laughs> right. you know, so like we, we, we've been trying to gauge our demand and build for that, right? So like when you start a new company, you don't just go make 20,000 knives, <laughs> you know, I mean, unless you have a hell of a lot of money, but you know, when I made 200 knives, it cost me a lot of money and, and it was nerve wracking. Totally. Um, and so it's been a, it's been a building process, right? Of, of, uh, you know, uh, our friend Kip folks calls it vine to vine, uh, manufacturing where, you know, you, you want a firm grasp on the next vine before you let go of this vine. Okay. I like and that. that's kind of where we've been like, all right, we're, we did that well. Now we're going to grab this vine and we're going to figure it out before we let go of this one. And we just keep climbing, sure. you know? Yeah. And, uh, so we've, we've ramped up the numbers of knives. We've come out with more models. Um, honestly, the, uh, the whole, port situation you talked about in the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, we're fully at the uh, at the mercy of that because even though we manufacture everything here, unfortunately, uh, our government and, and our country has let our steel manufacturing in the United States basically entirely collapse. Right. So a lot of the steel that we get comes from like Austria or Switzerland. Okay. So we're trying to get steel in Gotcha. Um, just in the raw big sheet form sure. so we can yeah. actually go to work on it. And uh, for example, I ordered steel in March that won't be delivered until next July. Holy buckets. Yeah, so that's the, that's the kind of like, so it's a little hard to plan as a company like when you think, oh, we've got enough steel and then you sell through a bunch of knives and it's like, holy cow, we like, we need a lot more steel and we need it in a hurry. So yeah. I've been buying steel from everywhere that's the right alloy and trying to figure it out. Yeah. Um, and we're also cutting more and more blades every time. Like right now, uh, we're, we're actually, uh, you know, somewhere, we have somewhere around 10,000 knives in production. Uh, last year I made 200 and thought I'd probably never, ever sell them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so crazy. <laughs> so, 
uh, yeah, it's definitely ramp, you know, ramping up the process. And, and also we're trying to bring more of the processes, some of the things that we're outsourcing around the U.S. Sure. You know, we're, we're actually looking at trying to build a way, you know, a lot bigger building right here on site. Nice. Um, looking at hiring a guy that can help with some expertise in the machining side. And again, it's that American dream of like, we're, we're making and we're stacking up some money here to try mm-hmm. and then spend it over here to build a building. And, yeah. um, you know, we haven't had to borrow any money yet. So we're just trying to kind of do it safely and wisely. And That's awesome, man. Like I say, just kind of the old school American dream way, you know. That's so cool. And it's so, and, and like you said, I mean, uh, one year for it to go from 200 to 10,000 in production is, I mean, that's insane. And, yeah. And uh, so... The models you have right now, there's four, correct? Is there, or am I miss? Yes, yes, that, that you, that, that the public knows. That, like. I, that we currently know about, because <laughs> yeah. that was going to be my next question. Like, what's kind of your forward-thinking plans? Like, is it, do you have yeah. like a stable of what you're wanting to have your mains, or are you just always going to kind of come out with a, a version of something else? No, I've, I've, got, uh, I've got new prototypes that are actually in production now that no one's cool. seen. Um, what's cool about having the experience I have is a lot of knife companies just design all their knives and do all their stuff on a computer or with CAD or whatever, where mm-hmm. frankly, I actually kind of need to learn that side of it. But I, I do it the old school way where I actually make a prototype, make the knife, and then I send it off to a guy who actually takes, uh, it's called CMM, uh, where they can computer map it. Mm. And he actually takes points on that whole knife all the way along, and it builds the computer program off of what I made. Oh, cool. Um, So you're actually getting, in a production knife, you're really getting what I actually handmade myself the first time, which is a unique way that I don't think most companies are doing that way. Because it's, quite frankly, it's a little cumbersome and a little little expensive uh, in the beginning. But I I honestly feel like it gives you a different feel for our product. so yeah, we have a, our speed goat blade. We have a Blackfoot blade. Both of those are really kind of smaller knives, lightweight. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a Stonewall uh, blade, which is a bigger kind of skinny knife, and then a bear tooth blade, which is a big fleshing blade. We came up with Cole Kramer in Alaska. He's an Alaskan bear guide uh, oh, for cool. fleshing hides and cutting meat. I'll tell you, we're uh, in the process right now of making uh, chef's knives. So we have three models Ooh. of chef's knives. Nice. Uh, Three models of those. We have a fillet knife, and we also have uh, um, another little knife that I'm not going to say exactly what it is, but it's uh, it's coming. And then I also developed a hatchet. Oh uh, no way! Yeah, and that's new here. I've not said that anywhere, but uh, all right. Um, so we are like those are all things that are coming. Mm-hmm. So I, I would honestly, actually, I could actually say that we have more models that you haven't seen than we actually have right now. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> so That's awesome. Um, so with the way that you've had to release all these, I mean, they've been these drops that you've done mm-hmm. like monthly or bi-monthly or whatever they've been for each for each thing. Like, is that the process that's going to have to stay just to keep up with the demand? Or do you envision it being a kick? I mean, because I, with how much you're making right now, I mean, it just would, to me, and maybe it's not, would seem impossible to just have that many on hand in anticipation of like, yeah, just go on and buy whenever. Like, right. it just seems like this is the easier way to do it right now to keep up with all that. Even though now you're still like, there's more d- demand than you guys have supply for. 
Yeah, I think it's the fairest way right now to drop drop a bunch of knives where it gives people kind of an equal chance to get it instead of doing ones and twos here and there and no yeah. one ever knows when they're going to be. Sure. Uh, the goal really is to, uh, to get to where down the road we have knives for sale all the time on our website. I mean, that's the goal. But for right now... Um, you know, we're just increasing the size of our production and mm-hmm. and trying to make sure that, again, that vine-to-vine thing where, like, when we make a new model, we might only make a couple hundred because we need to figure out the process. Yeah. I don't want to cut, you know, 10,000 blades and then come to find out we have problems with all of them. Totally. Um, so, you know, uh, that's kind of where we're at right now. I, I do... I, People ask also about like wholesale and stores and stuff. Right now, we're doing all direct sales because it, we can't even meet our our website demand right now. It doesn't make sense to then go make a bunch for a store where they go sit. Yeah. Um, and I like I like the interaction of the of this right yeah. here where our customers are dealing with us directly. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so I want to keep that as long as I can. Honestly, down the road, obviously the uh, the the big goal down the road would be to be able to make enough knives at the same quality level where we can have them everywhere, right? Um, and and readily available for anyone. But uh, for now, this is kind of the model we're going with, and we're just trying to increase the numbers so it gives people a little more of a chance of of buying them. Totally. You know? And are you still doing? Uh, I mean, just like custom ones that you make still. I mean, is that still a portion of? I mean, not under the MKC, you know brand technically, but is that still something that you just do for yourself and for other people? Yeah, I have my Josh Smith knives kind of brand or my, you know, that Instagram. That's really what that's meant to be is one, if you follow that, you get a little more personal side. I can post what I want there. Uh, And yes and no, I haven't really been doing much of that because I've been building prototypes and really MKC is my focus. However, um, I do have like a couple Damascus custom folders that I'm getting ready to start for people. Cool. Um, I I don't ever want to lose that. Like I want to be able to show people that like that's what's actually kind of unique about MKC is the owner and the guy who started it can actually like go off on a weekend or a couple weekends in a row or whatever and build like something really, really cool and mm-hmm. custom. Um, and I love doing it. Like I still love forging. I still love like the artistic side of making mm-hmm. something that, you know, those knives, um, I, I view all of our knives as something that aren't ever going to get thrown away. They might get put up in the safe. They might get abused, break them down the road, break a tip off of them or sharpen them down to nothing or whatever. Um, you know, knives went through a time period here in the last 10 years where like the throwaway knife became a thing. And it's, it it is handy. Guys don't have to sharpen their knives and whatnot, but they also don't have anything to pass down to their son or daughter, um, you know, or their, their, their best friend or whatever. Uh, I think knives are a lot like guns. It's one of the very, very few things in our society today that won't get thrown away. Yeah. And they come with a story like, yeah, my dad got this back in the early 2000s and he used it for 25 years and he went on this hunt and he killed a grizzly bear and <laughs> did all this, you know. Um, same thing with my customs. To me, those are knives that are very likely going to be in museums in another 100 years, 200 totally. years, you know. So, uh, you know, those knives will never get thrown away, which is, a, to me, that's really cool. You're making something 
almost everything you look at in a store today is made, it's going to get thrown away. Right. You know, um, those guitars on your wall, those probably aren't going to get thrown away, right? Like, no. there's, there's, <laughs> things, there's things like that that people will pass down uh, someday, whether it's your kids or there'll be a family member when you pass away some wet day where they're like, hey, uh, oh, did I lose you here? No, I'm here. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know what uh, what my computer, there we are. Uh, oh. But there will be somebody someday that they're going to be like, hey, those guitars that uh, grandpa had, let's give them to this guy because that, mm-hmm. that's going to mean a lot to him or whatever, you yeah. know. Um, so I think there's just a few things today in this world that are being made that are that have a lot of value in that way. That's a really cool way to look at it too. And then connecting you to it in that process, I mean, that would make sense why you do the MKC stuff the way you do where you build the prototype first and essentially make it up. That connects you still to like the actual things that you're putting out. Like you're the one still technically making it, even though it's not like you're, you're custom making every single knife. But right. You're still the one making them. It's not yeah. just like some computer generated thing, like you said, and we just have like a, a stencil now when we, when we run it through the thing. Right. Yeah. And even if I'm not working on every single one right now, like I have a couple really fantastic employees in my shop working on those. And you actually know those knives were made in Montana by actual mm-hmm. American people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff being made overseas right now and stuff like, you have no idea who made that. You don't even know what city it came from. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just, uh, I, I think it gives something where there's there's kind of a nostalgia to it where it's like, you know, some guy in New York gives it to his uh, son in Florida and he says these were made in a, a small shop in Frenchtown, Montana, which mm-hmm. that's what it is, you know. Um, our shop is literally where I'm sitting in my house right now and I walk out the door and I'm in my shop, you know, and that's where my <laughs> that's employees awesome. are at. So it all happens awesome. right here on my property. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. That's a, that, and the story behind it is, I think, what probably connects people to it more. You know, obviously, the, the quality of the things is, is like mm-hmm. a major selling point. But, I mean, the story part of it, like you said, I mean, you guys have a story that people follow and, like, appreciate the story of the company rather than just, like, here's just this random one I picked up. You know, it's like a gas station pocket knife or whatever. It'll work for a little while. But then, like you said, I'm going to chuck it. You know, yeah. uh, like the story that you're connecting people with is is what makes it so successful, in my opinion. Yeah, and that's that's honestly probably the part that's like it actually gets me emotional a lot of times when like people are buying us as much mm-hmm. as they're buying the knives. You know, they're buying our way of life. They're buying into my employees, my wife, my kids, myself. Um, they're supporting us as much as they want the actual just physical knife. So. Um, Mm -hmm. no, it's, I don't take that lightly at all. Like it means a ton. Same thing when someone buys a $5,000 custom knife from me, I mean, they're choosing to spend a lot of money Mm -hmm. and they're, yes, they like the knife, but they're, you know, they're buying a piece of me, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they could, if they're, if they're going to drop that kind of money, they could go spend that on anything. Right. But they're coming to you because like they want, I want Josh making this one. Yeah, and 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 it means the same amount to me t- for the two hundred and fifty or three hundred dollar knife that MKC's selling because you know percentage of people's income wise, uh, a lot of the people that are buying our MKC knives, it's probably a bigger percentage of their income than the guy who spent five grand. Uh, totally. That's a multimillionaire. Like 
the people who are buying these knives, a lot of a lot of those people are probably somewhat paycheck to paycheck or, you know, um, living without health insurance or, yeah. you know, I mean, saving up for a hunt they want to do in five years. Like, no, it means, it means a great deal to me that like, I, you know, I've, I've been that guy. Like there's a lot of stuff out there that I would like to purchase myself that I have to mm-hmm. save up for, mm-hmm. um, you know, a new gun or whatever from Volkorts and firearms or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it means a lot to people when they buy something. And, and, uh, I, like, like I say, I don't take that stuff lightly at all. That's awesome. Do you have, so I'm, I'm going to ask this of the ones that are currently available, mm-hmm. because I don't know if another one would take the place of this. Do you have one of the ones that's currently available that's your favorite that of any of the ones? Um, well, the knife that's dropping tonight, uh, which I'm not sure when this podcast will air, so this will probably be old, but... Yeah, uh, I think two weeks from now, so this one will happen after this. Yeah, so right, and and we'll be we'll have some more of these stone walls that even after this podcast drops. So uh, tonight, which it's, uh, I don't even know what the date is today, it's Thursday afternoon seven or Thursday morning. Something like that? Seven. Yeah, some, something yeah, like seven. that. Uh, we're dropping the stone wall blade. Um it's hard for me to say what my favorite knife is because I designed them all for a real purpose. So it depends on the job. We have a speed goat that's, you know, paracord wrap that's just super light, easy to carry. Um, but like this stone wall is probably our like hardiest heavy duty, mm. like go to work knife. Um, it's all around. I, I love it. Uh, our Blackfoot blade uh, that we're hoping to have in November um, uh, available again. Again, it's a it's a pretty heavy use knife, but it's also still in that range of being really light. Um, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, this this Stonewall probably is probably my favorite. I have a sentimental value towards the Blackfoot because that was the first knife I made to launch the company. Okay, so it's always going to be like hard for me not to say that's not my favorite yeah, knife. That's the baby. <laughs> yeah, but this Stonewall blade is really good. Uh, you know, our bear tooth blade that we're going to have coming out again here pretty soon. It's a lot more job specific okay. and it's not for everyone. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's for flesh and hides or for cutting meat. Um, it's not as utilitarian. Gotcha. Um, but if you need it for the job that it's made to do, it's going to do a phenomenal job, you know. Where the Stonewall knife, the Black, Blackfoot and the Speak Oak can kind of do a lot of different things, yeah, you know. More universal with their use there. Yeah. I'm super stoked about the Chef's Knife end of it. I think it's going to open us up to. You know, guys can buy knives for their wives. Their wives can buy knives for their husbands. That's going to be dope. um, That whole field, the table where you use one of our speed goats or stone walls out in the field, and then you're using one of our chef's knives to prepare that meal for your family. I think that's going to be really cool. That's super cool. Is there, I mean, I don't know if you even know, I'm sure you do, but is there, do you have like a time table for that kind of stuff? Or is that not something you're wanting to say yet? Honestly, we, and this is no, not BS in here. Like we still have to figure out how to finish them. So again, mm. that's kind of that whole we're learning. Uh, yeah. You know, we've got a couple hundred of each model. We're going to get those uh, going on those blades here in a couple weeks. And we're just going to start working through that. So honestly, I would really like to say by Thanksgiving. Mm. Um, nice. But I'm not. I don't, we haven't put anything like official out on our Instagram or announcing sure. dates because I want to know that we can finish every one of those correctly um, and to the level that we think they should be. 
Totally. Um, before then I can come out and say, okay, we're going to have these done. They're going to be right. And here's the date, you know? Yeah, totally. You mentioned you're doing, uh, you're, you're leaving in a few days for a hunt. What are you, what are you doing for this one? Uh, elk hunting, uh, going with some of the black rifle coffee people nice. and, uh, we're, uh, taking a little bush plane out of Montana here into the backcountry of Idaho. And, uh, then from that little, uh, there's an airstrip in the uh, wilderness there. That's just a grass strip mm-hmm. land on. And then we're going to take horses and mules from there up into the mountains awesome. and, uh, stay in wall tents. The weather's supposed to be going like to hell really bad. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be, it's been like summer around here the last week. Yeah. Uh, the weather's changing a little today and then they're talking like maybe heavy snow by Monday, Tuesday. <laughs> Crazy. So, yeah. Same in Montana. I lived in Montana for four years. It's just all like, you never, like four seasons in a day. Like that's yeah. normal. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, we're, uh, that's awesome. We're, um, we're, we're maybe in for it, but it's going to be an experience and plus I'm going to some really cool people. So it's going to be fun. That's awesome, man. That sounds like it'd be a good time. Well, we're rolling up on uh, on an hour here, so thank you, man, for hopping on. This was a blast. I'm really glad we were able to make it work. Where, I mean, you're doing the drop tonight, which you know this podcast won't be able to get in time for that. But like, right. where is everything? You know, Montana Knife Company. Like, give all the links, all the stuff where everybody can follow along and stay uh, up to date with everything. Yeah, at Montana Knife Company is our Instagram, uh, Facebook. Uh, I do encourage people to get on there on our website, montanaknifecompany.com and just sign up for our email list and that will get you. And we actually have a text list. Uh, Instagram had a major, you know, malfunction the other day. Mm-hmm. And plus we sell knives, we sell weapons and Instagram, <laughs> right. Instagram's not real friendly to us. So we actually just came up with a text uh, kind of app that you can sign up for to just get notifications on when knives come available that's awesome. Um, and that also helps us if uh, the Instagrams, Instagram gods one day decide they don't want a knife company anymore, uh, yeah. we can get a hold of people. So that e- our email list and our text list is really important yeah. um, for us to be able to communicate with people. Um, but yeah, and then my personal Instagram is just at Josh Smith Knives. Um, I try to, you know, post a little bit more about like personal stuff, hunting stuff, family, um, and then more of my customs. That's awesome. And I, I tend to let people in a little more on some secrets on there than I probably should. My business partner, Brandon, <laughs> probably shakes his head, but I tell people awesome. m- maybe more than what I should. But a lot of it's just because I'm excited, you know? Totally. It's like with the chef's knives. I'm telling you about the hatchet. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I shouldn't be saying that stuff. But, Put the brakes, man. Like, <laughs> But, yeah, who cares? If you can't be excited about it, then what the hell? You might as, I don't know what, you might as well do something different. I love it, man. Well, thank you for hopping on, man. It was was a blast. I appreciate you making the time. Absolutely. Thank you. Love the podcast. Do a great job. (laughs) Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Thanks. (laughs) 